0: So that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is the podcast, New Books in Economic and Business History. This is a channel. In the network, new books. I'm Javier Mejia from Stanford University. I'm your host. And today I have the great pleasure to be with Odette Galore. Odette is professor of economics at Brown University. He is um, extensively known for being the founder of Unified Growth Theory. We're going to talk about that. Um, and in a bit what it is and what its importance of this theory. But his work has been quite influential and he's considered uh, one of the pioneers in the exploration of the impact of evolutionary processes, population diversity and inequality on the process of development over most of human history. He has an extensive list of awards and recognitions that include the, uh, a doctorate honoris Causa from UC Lovain and Poznan University of Economics and Business. He has an extensive um, affiliations and, um, and memberships to very prestigious um, research institutes and, and groups, which include NBER, CEPR. He's also editor-in-chief of the Journal of Economic Growth, editor of the Journal of Population Economics and co-editor of Macroeconomic Dynamics. He's a very influential and um, admired figure in the economic growth community. And um, he's the author of a book that was just published called The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality. We're going to be talking today about this book. And I spend the weekend reading the book and it's it, it it's been an incredible experience um um I found here a uh, very intriguing and and fascinating story of of humanity we're gonna go into the details of this a bit later but just to anticipate the interesting dimensions that uh, this book explored let me Quote here Bob Solo, um, a novel laureate in economics, and one of my personal heroes, that talks about um, Odette's work and this book in particular in the following way. Solo says Galore's project is breathtakingly ambitious. He proposes a fairly simple, intensely human, capital oriented model that will accommodate the millennia of Malthusian near stagnation the industrial revolution and its aftermath of economic growth, the accompanying demographic transition and the emergence of modern human capital base growth. The resulting book is a powerful mixture of fact, theory, and interpretation. Dad, thank you very much for being here with us.
2: Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast.
1: Great, we're gonna um, deal with uh, the content of of the book in a bit. But before that, I would like to know more about you, or I guess I would like you to tell um, our audience more about you, tell us a bit about um, who you are. What's your journey? You wrote a book about the journey of humanity. What is the journey of Odette Galore? and how did you become this um, important researcher in economic growth?
2: So I was uh, born and raised in Jerusalem, and uh, perhaps not surprisingly, given the deep historical context of life in Jerusalem, I developed over the years a great affinity to the understanding of the roots of human behavior and the deep roots of inequality. During my academic career, I was intrigued by the origins of inequality, the origins of the inequality in the wealth of nations, if you wish. And this curiosity gravitated me gradually over the years towards the field of economic growth. But in contrast to the dominating trends in the field in the late 1980s and early 1990s, my research was quite different. Rather than focusing on the notion of convergence that, pre- that is predicated naturally on the presumption that initial conditions do not matter in the long run, my research focuses on the understanding of the roots of inequality across nations and the role of initial conditions in the determination of the fate of nations. So more broadly, my quest for understanding of uh, the vast inequality in the wealth of nation led me ultimately to the creation of unified growth theory. And the development of this theory was fueled primarily by the conviction that a comprehensive understanding of global inequality would not be feasible in the absence of a theory that would reflect the principal driving forces behind the entire process of development, and at the same time would capture the central role of historical forces and prehistorical forces in bringing about the current disparities in living standards. Now, along my intellectual journey, I developed a great passion to the mathematical fields of dynamical system and bifurcation theory that naturally underlined the importance of initial conditions in the determination of the long run position of complex system, and these t- tools ultimately provided me with the critical elements in the development of unified growth theory.
1: okay, let's then move to the content of of the book right that um in a certain way captures um, your work on Unified Growth Theory. So how would you describe the fundamental questions that um, are addressed in the book?
2: Right, so the, the book entitled The Journey of Humanity, Roots of Wealth and Inequality, explore the evolution of humanity, of human societies, since the emergence of anatomically modern human in Africa 300,000 years ago to the present. And it focuses on two fundamental mysteries that surrounds this journey. What I defined as the mystery of growth, namely, what are the roots of the dramatic transformation in living standards in the past centuries, after hundreds of thousands of years of stagnation, and the mystery of inequality, namely, what is the origin of this vast inequality in the wealth of nations? Now, it is important to note that over most of human existence, human life was largely nasty, brutish, and short. It was remarkably similar to that of any other species on planet Earth. Humans were preoccupied by survival and reproduction. Living standards were near subsistence. And there were minor differences in living standards across time and space. But then, in the past two centuries, we see this incredible metamorphosis, a dramatic transformation in living standards, both within and across societies. Income per capita in the world as a whole has increased by a factor of 14, life expectancy has more than doubled, and a great divergence in income per capita occurred across countries and regions of the world. Now, the conventional wisdom in some circles has been that living standards has increased gradually in the course of human history. But in fact, what we actually observe is something that is fundamentally different. Technological progress accelerated gradually in the course of human history, but nevertheless, it had a negligible impact on living standards over most of human history. In fact, the recent rise in living standards reflects a phase transition, namely an abrupt transformation once a certain tipping point has been reached. And consequently, If we wish to understand these two fundamental mysteries, the mystery of growth and the mystery of inequality, that, as I said, are perhaps the most fundamental mystery in the understanding of the journey of humanity, this would require us to identify the forces that permitted the transition from stagnation to growth, which is the goal of unified growth theory. It will require us to identify the origins of the differential timing of the transition across the globe, why some societies experienced this transition as early as the beginning of the 19th century and others only very recently. And it will require us to identify the role of historical and prehistorical forces in the transition uh, from stagnation to growth and the differential timing of this transition across the globe. And actually, the resolution of these mysteries will provide policymakers with the tools for the design of strategies that could mitigate inequality across the globe and can generate convergence in the wealth of nations.
1: You you describe this thing that you call the mystery of growth, which is Nothing different than well human history as um succession of stages right more specifically you talk for instance about moving from a stagnation to to growth would you mind saying a bit more about these stages um and why why do you think that that's the right way to to think about history cutting history on those lines on those stages and not some others, absolutely,
2: so naturally, given the two these two fundamental mysteries, and given the fact that it appears that much of the inequality that we see across the globe today was originated in events that occurred um, perhaps two hundred years ago, and ultimately, historical and prehistorical factors that affected this differential timing of transition in the past two centuries, we really need to have a better understanding of the process of development in its entirety. We need to have a better understanding how forces that operated during the Malthusian epoch generated the ultimate takeoff from stagnation to growth, and generated this differential timing of transition and consequently the inequality that we see across the globe. And consequently, the journey of humanity is focusing on three fundamental phases of development, the Malthusian epoch, that lasted over 99.9% of human existence, in which income per capita is largely fluctuating trendlessly around the subsistence level of consumption. The post-Malthusian regime that marks the takeoff from the Malthusian epoch, it occurred um, in the context of the most developed societies uh, towards the middle of the uh, 18th century. And the modern growth regime that is uh, uh, occurring uh, in the aftermath of the demographic transition towards the end of the 19th century in the context of the most developed societies in the world. And it's basically marking the transition of societies into a state of sustained economic growth. Now, importantly, as underlined in in the the book, the Malthusian Epoch, is characterized by important dualism, stagnation along with dynamism. During the Malthusian epoch, we see stagnation in living standards. Income per capita largely fluctuates near the subsistence level of consumption, and life expectancy fluctuated in a range of perhaps 25 to 40 years. But at the same time, we see great dynamism. Technology is evolving, population is evolving, and humans are adapting to their uh, technological environment. So, despite the fact that technological progress is very very slow initially, and despite the fact that population growth is very very slow initially, we see a gradual we see a gradual movement that over 300,000-year period since the emergence of anatomically modern human in Africa until the eve of industrialization makes an enormous difference. We are moving from stone tool technology 300,000 years ago to steam engine technologies in the eve of industrialization. And despite the fact that population is growing very slowly in the course of human history, In the course of this 300,000-year period, there is a tremendous increase in the size of the world population. In fact, the population of the world in the eve of the Neolithic Revolution 12,000 years ago is such that during this period, between the Neolithic Revolution and the Industrial Revolution, about, as I said, 12,000-year period, we see an increase by a factor of 400 times in the world population. So despite this period of stagnation, we see great dynamism, both in the context of technology, in the context of the size of the population, and the adaptation of the population to the technological environment. And it is this dynamism, Malthusian dynamism, that ultimately triggered the transition from stagnation to growth. So during the Malthusian epoch, the Malthusian pressure affected the size of the population and the composition of the population. And consequently, traits that were complementary to the growth process generated higher income, higher reproductive success, and naturally, they became more prevalent in the population. And this process of adaptation along with the process of an increase in the size of the population, raised the prevalence of complementary traits to the growth process and reinforced the process and the ultimate takeoff from stagnation to growth. Now, at the same time, it was the size and the composition of the population that affected technological progress. The size and the composition of the population affected the supply of innovations, the demand for innovations, the diffusion of knowledge, the division of labor and the extent of trade. And consequently, in the course of human history, we see this positive feedback loop between population size and population composition and technological progress. Larger population, more adapted population, is fostering technological progress, but on the other hand, greater technological progress is affecting population size and population composition. And this positive feedback loop is ultimately, as I said earlier, moving us from stone tool technology to steam engine technology in the eve of industrialization. Technological progress becomes so rapid that it outpaces biological reproduction, and consequently we start to see the growth in income per capita and, ultimately, dramatic increase in uh, the size of the population. But as we move forward, these wheels of change are generating a demographic transition, namely a decline in fertility that frees the growth process from the counterbalancing effect of population And, in addition, it generates human capital formation, technological progress, and all these three factors, technological progress, human capital formation, and a decline in uh, population growth are fostering um, uh, the uh, growth process and are permitting societies to move into the sustained growth regime. But importantly, as I said earlier, These processes are occurring in different pace across the globe. Some societies are experiencing this transition as early as the beginning of the 19th century, others much later, and consequently a huge divergence is occurring across the globe. So the first part of the book is taking us from uh, from Africa 300,000 years ago and brings us into the modern growth regime. And the second part of the book is in fact taking the, uh, the opposite steps, looking at inequality across the globe today, and gradually peeling different layers of influence that, uh, that uh, are critical for the understanding of comparative economic development across the globe. And we will be able to talk about them at greater details. But naturally, this will be colonialism, institutions, culture, geography, and human diversity.
1: Yeah, so just before moving to that part of, of the book and that conversation on, on economic inequality, um, let's get back to, I guess, some of the details of... Um, why we experience this transition from stagnation to growth. And one of the fundamental variables in in your analysis is population. And more specifically, um, the demographic transition is a fundamental force to to understand the arrival of of modern economic growth. Um, My question there would be, why did we experience um, such a change in, in infertility and in the evolution of population in so many different societies that were exposed to so many different contexts? And, um, and how important that has been in, in understanding uh, growth uh, globally?
2: Right, so as I said, in the course of human history, we see this uh, reinforcing interaction between population and technology. The size of the population increases. Humans are adapting to their technological environment. This fosters technological progress. And in turn, technological progress fosters an increase in the size of the population and an increase in the adaptation of the population. So in this process, Technological progress accelerates, and ultimately, the technological landscape in which people are operating is changing very rapidly. And consequently, human capital becomes essential in order to permit individuals to cope with this rapidly changing technological environment. Now, naturally, individuals during this time period, as they are today, are facing a budget constraint. They have limited resources. And parents that realize that, in fact, investment in the education of their children will benefit their children uh, down the road are facing by a budget constraint. They cannot afford the same amount of children and, at the same time, educate them as they would like to. And consequently, the incentives that are created to educate children are forcing parents to economize on the size of the family. Namely, we see a gradual decline in fertility that permits this investment in human capital. And it is this decline in fertility that frees the growth process from the counterbalancing effect of population. Namely, over most of human history, during the Malthusian epoch, technological progress results in an increase in the size of the population And consequently, there is very little impact on income per capita. But during the demographic transition, the decline in fertility is permitting technological progress to be converted into the material well-being of the population rather than into the size of the population. And the universal force that is operating across the globe, as I said earlier, is precisely this increase in the pace of technological progress that is requiring education as a tool to navigate this stormy technological environment. This occurs everywhere, in any place, that is experiencing uh, these rapid changes in the technological environment. So it's occurring initially in Western Europe in the... Um, in the 1870s and 1880s due to rapid change in the technological environment, and it occurs in less developed societies later on where their environment is changing more rapidly and human capital becomes essential to navigate this stormy technological environment. As a result of it, we see this universal trend towards a fertility decline that is freeing the growth process from the counterbalancing effect of population and permits the world to sail into the modern
1: growth regime this is a, there's something that i I find incredibly interesting in in your answers here but uh that's uh, a fundamental part of of your view of history and 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 your theory which is that this is not a history of events, right? So uh, there have, there has been um, a bunch of uh, events that have happened, wars, governments, uh, different type of policies, uh, pandemics. And frequently when people talk about human history, they focus on these events, right? But you're your view and your book is different, right? It has a more structural um, description and, and analysis of, uh, of human history. Why do you think that that's the case? Why do you have that perspective? And why do you think that is problematic to think about human history as a series of, of events instead of a sub-process um, with uh, profound forces?
2: Yes, so naturally, if we think about human history, as you just suggested, it is rich with countless and fascinating details. We can think about mighty civilizations that rose and fell. We can consider charismatic emperors who led armies to massive conquests and defeats. Uh, we can observe artists who created enchanting cultural treasures. And naturally, we can uh, read the writing of philosophers and scientists who advance our understanding of uh, of the universe. But clearly, it is easy to become adrift in this ocean of details and be unaware of the current underneath. And ultimately, the perspective of the journey of humanity is a macrohistory perspective. Namely, rather than focus on the, the, the details that, as I said, are fascinating, but at the same time are very destructive, it focuses on these fundamental undercurrents, the wheels of change that permits, in fact, the resolution of the mystery of growth and the mystery of inequality. So as I just underlined, focusing on the interaction between the size of the human population, the adaptation of the human population, and technological progress as being the major wheels of change that are naturally interacting with a lot of other elements. They're interacting with culture and with institutions and with geography and with population diversity and with a lot of uh, um, uh, of, uh, random events that are occurring in human history. But ultimately, what drives the journey of humanity are these fundamental currents, these fundamental wheels of change. They can move a little faster, a little slower. They can be disrupted for a short period of time due to major random events. But ultimately, their rotation is what governs the history of mankind. And therefore, if we would like to understand the history of mankind, we have to focus On these wheels of change
1: let's talk about economic inequality now so um, you describe this universal process and this journey that humanity has gone through but um, some societies seem to have moved through that journey faster or maybe more um, efficiently than others, and what we have today in our modern world is um, like it's an environment where you have quite a lot of inequality. We have very prosperous societies, and some others that are not. And a good part of your book, um, what it tries to do is to reflect um, very profoundly about the reasons for that. And you talk about these deep-rooted factors that can explain economic um, inequality. Can you tell us um, more about that? What are those factors?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about inequality as we observe it today, we can try initially to explain it based on differences in physical capital accumulation, human capital accumulation, and technological level. But the immediate question is, why some society failed to efficiently invest in physical and human capital? Why some societies fail to adopt advanced technologies? So what are the barriers in the context of accumulation? And what are the barriers for technological adoption? And actually, these barriers are leading us into uh, uh, events that are occurring much earlier namely those deep-rooted factors. They can be institutional factors or cultural characteristics, or they can be what I will define as the ultimate roots of comparative development, namely geography and human diversity. When we think about the fingerprints of institutions, namely the emergence of differential institutions across the globe, growth-enhancing inclusive institutions in some regions of the world, and growth-retarding, extractive institutions in others. Some argue that, in fact, much of these variations can be attributed to some random events, critical junctures in human history. And in fact, we can cite uh, significant evidence Uh, about the impact of these critical junctures. Yes, the division of Korea along the 38th parallel clearly generated uh, a persistent uh, impact on the development of the South and the development of the North. Yes, the Black Death and its impact on the decline of feudalism in the UK had a tremendous impact on the ultimate uh, uh, industrialization in, in the UK. And the same holds for the Glorious Revolution and its impact on the establishment of constitutional monarchy in England and ultimately industrialization. So yes, from time to time, critical junctures affected the imposition of differential institutions across the globe. But broadly speaking, institutions are rarely manna from heaven. Institutions have mostly evolved gradually. The Neolithic revolution generated an increase in population density and generated the demand for institutions that could foster cooperation across individuals. Fertile land, led into higher population density, and again, led to the demand for rule of law that can uh, generate a more cohesive society. Soil suitability for large plantation generated the incentive to establish extractive institutions, and ultimately slavery. The disease environment affected the process of development and ultimately delayed the adoption of centralized institutions. So when we think about institutions, actually, this is a major force in understanding comparative development, but it is largely predicated on earlier forces, geographical forces, human diversity, that are affecting uh, the implementation of differential institutions across the globe. We think about A slightly deeper factor, or cultural factors, again, we can think about the emergence of differential cultural traits across regions. In the context of the divide between southern and northern Italy, some argued that uh, growth enhancing uh, cultural traits, such as social capital, that emerge in the north, and growth retarding cultural traits, such as family ties, are behind the divide that we see at the moment. But again, cultural traits are also not mana from heaven. There are some random events that naturally brought about uh, some, some sort of, if you wish, cultural mutations that persisted over time. But largely speaking, culture evolved in the context of an adaptation to uh, the environment, an increase in the return to human capital, increased the predisposition of individuals towards education and child quality. Higher return to uh, agricultural investment led to the emergence of future-oriented mindset. Climatic volatility led into the emergence of uh, loss neutrality and entrepreneurial spirit, and plow suitability led to the emergence of gender biases in society. So again, when we think about the cultural factor, it is a very important factor, a factor that interacts with the wills of change, but nevertheless a factor that predominantly has uh, roots that are somewhat deeper. So this leads us into the shadow of geography, namely geographical characteristics, such as soil quality, the disease environment, geographical isolation, that had a direct impact on labor productivity and human capital formation, but at the same time had an indirect impact through the evolution of cultural and institutional characteristics. And when we refer to the shadow of geography, and particularly to the long shadow of geography, this can take us, nearly 12,000 years back into the onset of the Neolithic Revolution. And as suggested by Jared Diamond and his influential theory, the onset of the Neolithic Revolution was associated with a persistent effect of technological head start. Namely, this transition from hunter-gatherer tribes to agricultural communities led to the emergence of a non-food producing class. It was associated with knowledge creation in the form of science, technology, and written languages, and ultimately led into technological head start. And this technological head start lasted over a, a prolonged period of time. Diamond suggested that perhaps it lasted till the present. In fact, the evidence suggests that this is, in fact, inaccurate. But we can see. the the origins of the variation in economic prosperity till about the year 1500 and its mapping to the variations in the timing of the Neolithic Revolution. So when we think about present-day inequality, as I said, unfortunately, the diamond hypothesis will not enable us to understand much of these variations. In fact, as I said, it is quite mute in understanding the current variations because the Neolithic Revolution was associated, on the one hand, with a technological head start, but on the other hand, with comparative advantage in agriculture that backfired in the modern days. And this, in fact, causes us to search even deeper, to deeper roots of comparative development, namely events that occurred not 12,000 years ago, but events that occurred as early as 60 to 90,000 years ago. And this is the migration of Homo sapiens into Africa and its impact on population diversity. And as I show in the book and earlier in my research, Population diversity had a critical impact on comparative economic development and it persisted over time due to the fact that population diversity has conflicting effects on economic prosperity. On the one hand, it fosters innovation due to the cross-pollinization of ideas, but on the other hand, it generates incohesiveness in the society that is naturally detrimental for productivity. And consequently, based on these migratory patterns that occurred across the globe in the past, we see this incredible impact of events that occurred, as I said, as early as sixty to ninety thousand years ago on economic development. So as I argued in the context of uh, the, the different forces that I just underlined. It appears that deep-rooted factors account for a significant part of the variations in income per capita across the globe. Nearly 90% of the variations in income per capita across the globe can be traced to to these deep-rooted factors. They can be political institutions that explain perhaps 3 to 9% of the variations, It can be cultural factors that explains uh, perhaps uh, 20% of the variations. They can be traced into geographical factors that can explain 20 to 40% of the variations. And they can be traced to human diversity and out of Africa migration that can explain 17 to 25% of these variations. And this basically, these are the roots of comparative development as explored across the globe.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus and keto. These are two minute meals Slash nbn fifty to get fifty percent
1: off. This is fascinating. Uh, I mean, even the orders of magnitudes that you describe are um, are quite shocking, right? Um, it's it's a theory, a very ambitious theory that tries to explain how the world looks nowadays and finds the reasons of that back in history. Um, and to that, some people could argue that um, this is probably a very deterministic view of human history, right? That um, that the explanation of uh, how our our societies look depend on things that happened in the past, and some of the things that you describe happen in the very, very distant past. So. What would be your reaction to someone that would tell you that that uh, that does not leave much agency to to human action? First, do you think that that's a fair type of of, of critique? And and what uh, in general would be your position to 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 that?
2: So this is a very important uh, question, and I'm glad that you ask it. And my viewpoint is, in fact, uh, sharply different. In fact. Uh, Uh, There is no, uh, I mean, it would be a misreading of of the thesis to think about historical determinism. Uh, In fact, the insights from the journey of humanity as such, uh, they permit us to have a better understanding of the past so as to design the proper policy that will assure prosperity in the future. Namely, if you think about the design of growth enhancing policies they will have to be country specific history specific they will have to be policies that are basically respective of the individual history of each particular society so let me give you a few examples so, if we think about education policies that can be derived from, uh, from the journey of humanity, one important education policy is basically targeting different countries based on the degree of diversity that they possess at the moment in a differential way. So, if we focus on diverse societies, societies uh, such as the one that reside in sub-Saharan Africa. Naturally, diversity in these societies would require the education system to be geared towards social cohesiveness and tolerance. Namely, the curriculum that will have to be designed in these societies will have to assure that people respect one another, that ethnic groups are being uh, respected and tolerated, and social cohesiveness is being formed. But if you take other societies, societies that tend to be very homogeneous, then naturally these societies can benefit from cultural diversity. They can benefit from cross-fertilization of ideas. And consequently, the education system in this type of societies will have to be geared towards pluralism, towards thinking outside of the box, towards um, challenging the status quo towards cultural exchange and cultural diversity that will mitigate the lack of diversity in these societies. So again, the understanding that history matters, the understanding that history affected differentially the degree of diversity across the globe, we are arming ourselves with an important understanding of the policies that should be orchestrated in different places across the globe. It's not just a universal policy of educating people. Naturally that's very important. But designing the curriculum in a very different way in societies that are diverse and societies that are less diverse. As I said, in diverse societies, let's try to educate people towards tolerance and social cohesiveness in homogeneous one. Let's try to educate people to think outside of the box, to challenge the status quo. And at the same time, we think about other important traits, cultural traits such as future-oriented mindset, gender equality, etc. Then again, if we focus on the history of an individual country, And if we realize that the geographical endowment in this particular region of the world foster certain type of cultural traits less than desirable, then again, we can focus our education policies towards the fostering of future-oriented mindset in different ways. Naturally, we do educate our children these days to be uh, to to learn how to delay gratification, to think about the future, and we can do it systematically in a more rigorous way in those societies in which the geographical endowment perhaps did not lead into, um, into sufficient degree of future-oriented mindset, or in, in some places across the globe, due to, say, a geographical endowment that fostered gender inequality. Um, um, we see the prevalence of gender bias and consequently underdevelopment. Again, the education system in this type of societies will have to focus on uh, how to um, foster gender equality so as to, again, increase labour force participation of women, foster a decline in fertility, and promote economic growth. So as I said, Despite the fact that the journey of humanity suggests to us that the wheels of change are very important for the understanding of the process of development, by exploring them, we are arming ourselves with a better understanding of the process of development as a whole. And consequently, we are providing policymakers with the tools that can foster inequality across the globe.
1: This is fascinating. I, I find very inspiring what you say, and, and this is a message that I think the book um, is able to uh, to transmit very effectively, the idea that understanding better um, our history is uh, probably the best tool that we have to to transform our societies. And I, I teach a course, it's called Wealth of Nations, but it deals basically with these big questions on on growth and economic inequality. And and the spirit of the course goes pretty much in in that same direction, right? It's quite context-oriented, and and we try to um, provide an extensive exploration of global history so students understand how we ended up in the world that we live today and, and how we can transform it. So I think that your book, and I'm very... Happy actually that the, the book uh, came out because it's a great tool for um, for that type of course. I'm going to I already have um, the idea of including a couple of um, of your chapters in in my syllabus, but um, but it's a very profound type of uh, contribution to to policy discussions. Right? How can we structurally think about um changing uh policies understanding that context matter and that and that history matters so again thanks a lot for for this and um we're getting close to the end and and I would get I, I would like to talk a bit about the process of writing the book and and thinking about the most uh, effective way to... Uh, to communicate these very important messages that, that 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 you want to do with such a um, profound complexity right and and one of the things that uh grabbed my attention of your book is that it has this uh rather unique structure right the book has two parts the first one goes from genesis that's the 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 title of the first chapter to basically nowadays while well, the second part part two goes basically the other way around it uh ends and that's the last chapter of of the book um with the out of africa hypothesis right so you start from exploring modern economic inequalities and you go page by page and you take the reader in in this journey back to history to understand um the forces behind that. So, I would like to know a bit um, about that. Um, that decision of structuring uh, the narrative in, in in those lines. Why did you do that? What What did you have in mind when when deciding to tell the story in that way?
2: So, indeed, the, the, the two. Parts of the book are very distinct in terms of the time time orientation. The first part of the book is uh, starting with the emergence of anatomically modern human in Africa 300,000 years ago and march to the present. And the second part of the book is starting with the existing inequality across the globe today and then gradually peel different layers of influence so as to uncover the roots of this inequality. Now, in fact, I mean, the, the book is structured uh, to a large extent around my intellectual journey. So as I said at the outset, I was fascinated by, uh, by the mathematics of dynamical systems, and I was fascinated by the understanding of how initial conditions could govern the process of, uh, uh, the process of change over the entire course of human history. And consequently, the first part of the book is, in fact, following the roots of unified growth theory, namely, let's start with an initial condition, a few thousand people, somewhere in Africa, 300,000 years ago. And let's see how, in fact, humanity will evolve from this initial condition, where, in fact, all variables will be endogenous, technological progress population size, population composition, and the growth process itself. And this basically took us from Africa and brought us to the present. And this was, as I said, an attempt to understand how do we understand the mystery of growth? How do we understand the phase transition from an epoch of stagnation into a state of sustained economic growth? But then in the second part of the book, Part of my intellectual journey and part of the intellectual journey of many others that were uh, um, uh, concerned with the issue of inequality across the globe today was basically the present day inequality. We all observe the inequality as we see it today and we realize that there are some proximate causes of this inequality, as I said earlier. Physical capital accumulation, human capital accumulation, technological progress soon enough you realize that this is very superficial sense that the question is uh, is in fact why do we see these differences in technological adoption and and physical and human capital accumulation across the globe globe? namely what are the roots of this differential process of accumulation and my intellectual journey in fact took me into uh, another uh, uh, Subject of inquiry that is not part of this book, which is basically the understanding of how inequality can affect the growth process. So, in the, uh, in my paper with Iga uh, that is uh, in 1993, we basically try to understand how inequality can affect the process of accumulation. As as I said, as a force that can explain barriers in the in the process of accumulation. But naturally, inequality itself is endogenous, and other forces that people proposed at the time were endogenous. And this gradually took me back further and further in, in the course of my exploration into events that occurred in, uh, in the distant past. I mean, how geography affects cultural traits, how geography affects institutional traits, how ultimately human diversity was formed and how it interacts with cultural traits and human traits in understanding comparative development across the globe. So the structure of the book, to a large extent, is basically part of my intellectual journey and part of the way that I would like others to think about, uh, about the journey of humanity. I would like people to think about the journey of humanity in the context of the exodus from africa uh, and the emergence of anatomically modern human in africa 300,000 years ago initially but when uh, we try to explore inequality naturally we cannot start immediately with the deep roots we have to peel gradually different layers of influence and to go back as far as possible in human history ultimately back into the time in which anatomically modern human is emerging from Africa 60 to 90 thousand years ago
1: that's fascinating that's uh, really fascinating let me finish with um, with one question that I asked to all my guests this is a, a podcast on new books in, in economic and business history a field that um, has increasingly more incentives for people to um, to publish articles in journals, right? That's the dominant um, means of communication. So why writing a book? Why did you decide to write this book? How do you think about uh, the idea of of books and what role do they play in the both scientific and, and public opinion conversation?
2: Right. So this book is, is very different than most books that are written in economics in the sense that, uh, as you can see, it is uh, it is really designed for a very broad audience. It is designed for top researchers in the field that I think will be inspired and enlightened by it, by the, uh, the content of the book. But at the same time, it is designed for individuals that have no background whatsoever in the field of economics that would simply like to understand the journey of humanity as a whole. So broadly speaking, when we think about uh, researchers that are focusing on writing research articles as opposed to books, that's certainly, I mean, in order to write a book, I mean, you need to have the proper perspective that is accumulated over time. And in fact, in 2011, already 11 years ago, I published uh, uh, um, uh, the book Unified Growth Theory, in which I tried basically to share my knowledge with uh, uh, people that are operating in the discipline. It was not designed to people outside of the discipline. It was relatively uh, uh, technical and it was uh, mathematically sophisticated and it was basically sharing the insights that I gain over time and sort of uh, unified for people and make, make the, the theories and the insights more accessible. But now, this is really a huge transformation in the sense that uh, Unified Growth theory, a book is, is present. But what you see here is a book that is really geared, as I said, to a very broad audience. It's very accessible. And, and if uh, you quoted some of the, the, the comments made by, uh, by others, then you can certainly see it uh, in the back uh, of the book. I mean, it is quite apparent that the narrative is, uh, is, is intriguing and uh, the, the, the book is captivating, in the sense that it is written in a way so as to capture the attention of a broad audience. And I think this is very important because, again, if we view our research as a tool uh, uh, through which uh, humanity as a whole can have an impact uh, on its trajectory, and as uh, a tool that can mitigate inequality across the, the, the globe and alleviate poverty across the globe, then making the material accessible is very important. And I think I made it accessible, but at the same time, as I said, I think it would be fascinating for uh, any researcher in the field. I think that uh, uh, and there are a lot of elements in, in the book that, that will be new to top researchers in the field, but at the same time, the entire agenda will be new to people that are external to the field, and uh, hopefully by diffusing these ideas to such a broad audience, we can have an impact on, on the future journey of humanity.
1: Thank you very much that, um, this was a very interesting conversation. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us, but, uh, more than anything, thank you for writing this book. I, I think that as you said, this book, um, is going to be very helpful for many experts on the field, but, uh, for a very large audience, this book is going to change the way they think about, about history. And and that's not a minor thing. It's also profoundly entertaining let me let me tell you. Um, so I had a great time reading it. I'm sure that my students will as well. And that's actually something that I pay a lot of attention um, when assigning reading. So um, I'm sure this book is going to be um, extensively read. and I encourage all our readers to 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 look for it. It is already available to, Order it online. You can find the links for doing that on on the website uh, that um, accompanies this audio. But uh, it will be also pretty soon in all the bookstores. So take take a look at that. Let me finish with um, what I think is a very um, accurate um, description of the contribution of this book. And this is one of the praises that um, comes along the um, the book, and it it's it's it says the following: Very rarely does a book come along that truly transform the way we understand humanity. Books like Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens, and Thomas Piketty Capital. Odette Galore's remarkable The Journey of Humanity looks to set to join the ranks of these books. I totally agree with this and um, I'm really happy to uh, have had the chance to read or read the book and, and have the opportunity to talk um, uh, about it with you. So thanks again, Odette. Um, I hope to see you soon.
2: Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure.